the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, August 4th, 1846. I'm Sally Helm. Lansford Hastings feels like he should probably leave a note. After all, he is the guy who has published a book called The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California, promising to guide emigrants to Oregon and California. He spoke of green fields, fantastic farming, and easy living. He wrote about unexhausted and inexhaustible resources. And whole families in places like Missouri and Illinois have picked up their lives and packed up their wagons and followed his advice. Hastings, in his book, describes a shortcut, a quicker way to California. You can cut hundreds of miles by going through parts of what is now Utah. But although he points people towards the shortcut in his book, and although it looks clear enough on a map, this is his first time actually testing it. And what Lansford Hastings has found is not good. The road through the canyon ahead of him is terrible. There are boulders and ledges and dead ends. The wagons can barely make any headway. So he loops back to issue a warning to anyone following behind. He scribbles down a note. Actually, don't go this way. Send a messenger forward to meet me and I'll show you something better. A few days later, a group of pioneers encounters this note fluttering among the plants at the mouth of the canyon. They are confused and a little worried, but they send a messenger up to find Hastings and they set up camp at the mouth of the canyon. This is the first in a series of delays that will prove fatal because as August dwindles and the weather gets colder, the road ahead is becoming impassable. A few months later, this group will be snowed in with no way out. Today, the Donner Party. How did an unproven shortcut to California turn deadly? And what did the trapped pioneers have to do to survive? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's the spring of 1846, months before Lansford Hastings leaves that note. Back east in Illinois... Sarah Graves faces a predicament. She's a bright young woman, 21 years old, and she's engaged to a local farmer named Jay Fosdick, a charming guy who plays the fiddle. 
A lot of marriages at the time were about money or convenience, but Sarah and Jay, they're really in love. The problem is, Sarah's family is plotting a big move west. Her family was packing up this wagon, intending to head for California, which at that point was not even in the United States. It was, you know, 2,000 miles away. Daniel James Brown is the author of a book on the Donner Party, and specifically about the Graves family. Sarah's parents and siblings are ready to head to California. But Jay's father forbids him to go. He wanted to keep Jay on the farm to help with the work. So she had this terrible dilemma um, of whether to go with her family or marry this young man and stay behind, in which case the probability was she would never see her family again. Sarah loves her parents, Franklin and Elizabeth, and she loves her eight siblings. She'd helped raise some of them. And the plans for the westward move are well underway. The graves are committed. Because life in Steuben Township, Illinois, is hard. Things had gotten very grim. There had been a severe economic depression a few years before, and so they were having a hard time selling their crops. And even worse, malaria was affecting a lot of the people in the area, including Franklin, uh, Sarah's father. The region was swampy. People kept getting sick. And this was a form of malaria that isn't generally um, fatal, but it causes fevers, periodic very severe fevers. It's an absolutely miserable thing to have. So, California was their escape. As Sarah's family is making their final preparations, packing up their three covered wagons, Jay's father has a change of heart. Roughly 10 days before they set off, uh, Levi Fostick uh, relented and agreed that Jay could go to California. So they married and they set off on what must have seemed to them to be almost a honeymoon. On April 12th, Sarah and Jay and the Graves family rise early and begin the long journey west. They plan to stop first in St. Joseph, Missouri, to buy supplies and join up with other travelers. Because there are hundreds of families making this same journey. Americans at the time are talking about this new idea manifest destiny. Not just a right, but an obligation to spread American ideals and American democracy. Um, There was an issue, which was that California at the time was sovereign Mexican territory. Although the day after the Graves family left was the day that uh, the United States declared war on Mexico. So that was being uh, fought out in, in California. There were also native communities who had lived on the land for thousands of years. But when these settler families hear about California, all that war and conflict gets downplayed. Especially in the very popular Emigrant's Guide. Lansford Hastings has published this special shortcut that he says will bring you to California quick. And he has his own reasons for this. When families head west, they have a choice. Take the route to California or to Oregon. And Hastings wants them to choose California. He had a particular thing at stake here, a financial stake. He's bought a bunch of land there, and he wants to sell it to newcomers. It was very much in his interest to try to divert people 
from the Oregon Road and have them uh, take his shortcut and travel to California. Hmm. So he can make money off them there, essentially. Basically, so he could make money off, off of them when they arrived. He could sell lots to them. That was his scheme. He's a bit of a huckster. Though, in selling his untested shortcut, he does sound one note of caution. He writes that families must start their travels before the 1st of May. After which time, he says, they must never start if it can possibly be avoided because they risk being detained by impassable mountains of snow until the next spring or perhaps forever. By the time the Graves family makes it to Missouri, it is late May three weeks after Hastings' suggested deadline. Nevertheless, they board a ferry on the western side of the state, and their journey begins in earnest. They've now left the official boundaries of the United States, and they're feeling optimistic. Spirits were generally quite high as they set out, and this was obviously the adventure of a lifetime. Brown says there would have been hardships, bug bites, poor hygiene, heat. But in general, the graves are doing well. They're getting along with the other families they've joined up with. Jay's brought his fiddle. They've all brought a bunch of liquor. They often uh, pulled out fiddles and banjos and various instruments and had dances out on the prairie or wherever they might be, especially for the very young people or the, let's say, the teenage people. There was a lot of socializing and and a fair amount of romancing going on. The group has a festive 4th of July party in Fort Laramie, Wyoming. Shot off guns and drank liquor and and just generally had a very boisterous time. But just a couple of weeks later, on July 18th, they come to a crossroads. They had to decide whether to proceed on the established route or diverge from the trail and take a more southerly route. That southerly route will lead to Hastings' shortcut, and the Graves decide to take it. They aren't the only ones. Another group that left Illinois around the same time is just ahead of the Graves, heading for the Hastings' cutoff. The Reed family and the Donner family. And ahead of them is Lansford Hastings himself. It is about this time that he discovers... Oh, wait. There is no easy way through this part of the shortcut. The Wasatch Mountains. In fact, the east side of the Wasatch Mountains are heavily cloaked in scrub and vegetation and boulders and canyons. And it's anything but a wagon road over the Wasatch Mountains. So Hastings leaves that note, warning that there's trouble ahead. The Donna Reed party finds it in early August, and they are not happy. I think at that moment, they must have been extremely angry, for one thing. They had gone a long ways off the established road to take this shortcut. And the last thing in the world they needed at this point was was any kind of delay. Like the Graves family, the Reeds and the Donners left late. They're getting worried about winter. They set up camp at the spot where they found the note, 
and send a messenger up ahead to find Hastings. While they're waiting for him to return, who should appear but the Graves family, which now becomes part of the Donner Party. Eventually, the messenger that went out looking for Hastings, he returns. But Hastings has not been super helpful. Hastings agreed only to come back partway, sort of the summit of the Wasatch Mountains, and he sort of pointed generally at a canyon and to bring them up that way. And then he rode off back down into Utah, what is now Utah. Still, what choice do they have? The whole party, including the graves, sets out on Hastings' modified route. They spent the next, I think it was 13 days, fighting their way up this canyon just to get to the top of the mountains, at which point they could then see the Great Salt Lake ahead of them. Crossing the Great Salt Lake Flats is its own trial, and the group is starting to run low on supplies. They had very little water. They had only the water they could transport, and most of it had to go to watering their livestock, their horses and their oxen especially. And really the worst of it was the glare off the salt is so bright that you get what is essentially the same thing as snow blindness. After a short time out there, the glare you basically go black. They make it through. But as they begin to approach the Sierra Nevada mountains, they see something in the distance. They could see snow uh, on the higher peaks. And although there was not a great deal of snow visible at that point, that in itself must have been absolutely chilling to them. By now, The Donner Party is about a month behind the schedule they would have kept if they'd stuck to the established route. More and more, it is becoming clear that, despite all the bad advice in the Emigrant's Guide, that warning to start early was crucial. The group makes slow, grueling progress through the mountains. And around the end of October, they arrive at a place called Truckee Lake. They're getting more and more worried about snow, so they try to cross the mountain pass quick. By the time they get up into the high country, they're running into heavy drifts of snow already. And they just, they can't get the wagons through. Women are carrying babies. They're dragging these ponderous wagons, some of them. Others had left their wagons behind at the lake level. One night, exhausted, they set fire to a pine tree and huddle around it for the night. But... When they wake up on November 3rd, um, they're absolutely horrified to find that they and their equipment, their livestock, everything has been covered by, by heavy snow. And now they have a hard time even moving back down slope, let alone trying to cross the pass. It's then that they come to a terrifying conclusion. They begin to realize they may have to spend the winter here. So they start hastily trying to erect some kind of shelter. So they set out to build cabins. But as they're doing this, the snow just gets heavier and heavier. And it snows for eight straight days. Morale is already very low. They're not liking each other very much at this point to begin with. And they, they, they also know that there isn't anywhere near enough food to last them through the winter. They're not sure how long they'll make it. Also, it's freezing. 
They are cold down to their bones, especially at night. And calories are now beginning to become a big issue because without enough to eat, uh, they're beginning very slow process of, of starvation, basically. After almost two weeks in the mountains, Sarah's father, Franklin Graves, is done watching his family starve. Facing no other good choices, he begins to plot an escape. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Winter, 1846. Franklin Graves has a lot to lose. His whole family is stuck in the Sierra Nevada, and things are not looking good. Franklin Graves, he's a big, tough guy. He's one of the oldest people in the party. He's 57 years old. He's got nine children, including Sarah. And he's not just going to sit here and do nothing. He rounds up other members of the party, the people who are healthy enough to go for help. They try to climb up the mountain, hoping to make it to a nearby settlement in California. And every time they attempt the climb, they sink down, covered to their thighs in snow. But Franklin, he's not giving up. He had grown up in Vermont, and he had grown up using snowshoes. And so Franklin decides, well, he's going to make snowshoes. So he puts to work many of the people in his own family and other families manufacturing uh, snowshoes out of rawhide and timber salvaged from the wagons. Out there in the mountains, with almost no supplies, this makeshift factory produces enough snowshoes for 10 men, including Franklin and Jay, and five women, including Sarah. On December 16th, they're ready. They prepare to attempt the summit. Their hope is that they can save themselves and the rest of the Donner Party. But they will have to leave behind most of the Graves' siblings and Elizabeth, Sarah's mom. The partings were horrific. I think they all knew that there's a good chance that those who took off might never see the rest of them again. The group leaves Truckee Lake behind. They trek up the snowy mountain on their snowshoes, trying to find their way. 
Included in the group are two Miwok guides named Luis and Salvador. Not much is recorded about them, but they're from California and have been sent to help guide the Donner Party through the Sierras. It's land they know well. And the group successfully crosses the mountain pass. But then snow begins to obscure their view. And by now, Luis and Salvador are also not sure where they are. So they make a fatal wrong turn. They veer to the left instead of the right. And they begin to wander down into the canyon lands of the North Fork of the American River. And that is an absolutely catastrophic mistake. Another snowstorm hits. This time, the group is stuck. They've packed a few shreds of dried beef from camp. But after about a week, the food runs out. And some of them begin to die. On Christmas Eve, December 24th, several of the party dies, including Franklin Graves. And so they're huddled under a blanket, and one, two, three of them die. Their bodies are dragged out into the snow. They get back under the blankets, and the storm just keeps raging. A couple of days after Christmas, the snow lets up, and the group reaches a decision. They've decided that they're going to cannibalize the dead. And so this is the point, of course, of which psychologically they've gone over some kind of a cliff. Um, they believe that it's their only means of survival. And I think this is particularly hard for Sarah because it's her beloved father is one of the people whose flesh is going to be consumed here. They divide themselves up into groups so that no one has to eat the flesh of a family member. From there, they butcher the bodies. Everyone except Luis and Salvador partakes. Somehow, Sarah is able to carry on. She and the other survivors, fortified by human flesh, stagger through a canyon over increasingly difficult terrain. And finally, they make it below the snow line. It's time to leave the snowshoes, a mixed blessing. Their shoes have just been rotted away, and so many of them are literally barefooted. Their feet are bleeding. Now again, they haven't eaten for days and days and days. It's around then, on January 5th, that Jay Fosdick starts to falter. Starvation. He and Sarah fall behind. And it's clear that Jay might not make it. Sarah stays with her husband, wraps him up in a blanket until he finally dies. And then after he has died, she staggers on to catch up with the rest. Sitting there holding Jay's body, Brown says that Sarah wanted to die herself. But eventually, she gathered the strength to go on. She catches up with the others, tells them what's happened, and is met with a grim request. The group asks if they can go back to Jay's body and use it as food. And Sarah at this point says, you can't hurt him now. Around the same time Jay dies, the surviving men of the party are beginning to mutter among themselves about their Miwok guides. The tone is 
threatening. Luis and Salvador, it's not clear how much English they understand. They speak Spanish and their NATO language. But um, I guess they can see these men talking and get the drift of what might be happening. Luis and Salvador are able to escape. They take off into the night and disappear up the trail ahead. But the next day, the other men find them. And their accounts differ as to what happened. One of the men asserted that uh, Luis and Salvador were dead. The other asserted that they were all but dead. But the rest of the party heard two rifle shots. So it appears that they were murdered. And then that was, you know, absolutely horrific, abysmal uh, sort of conclusion to the whole sad affair. Luis and Salvador seem to have been killed for food. And I think that's shameful. You know, these, these young men, through no fault of their own, wind up being murdered. Their deaths are particularly awful because soon the pioneers encounter a Maidu village, close kindred to the Miwok. The inhabitants take them in, feed and care for them. From there, the group travels on and finally makes it to that California settlement, Johnson's Ranch. They had estimated that the journey from Truckee Lake would take six days, but it's been 33 days. One of the survivors is Sarah. Sarah has to be all but carried in at this point. She has literally run out of all reserves. At the ranch, she and the others are tucked into bed, given food and water, and they immediately spread the word that there are dozens of others still trapped at Truckee Lake. A rescue expedition forms. And actually, Daniel James Brown told us that his great-uncle and his great-uncle's father are part of it. My great-great-uncle, recent Pete Tucker, he gets all the way to the lake. And, you know, in many ways, most of the horrors we associate with the Donner Party are still to come. The first rescuers reach the lake on February 18th. The camp is covered in almost 20 feet of snow, with corpses scattered all over the site. This group, too, has been surviving on human flesh. It's a very grisly scene. Uh, there have been a number of bodies that have been butchered and, and cannibalized. Rescuers are greeted by one frail woman who asks, are you men from California, or do you come from heaven? It takes several rescue parties, but some survivors make it out. Of 87 people who are considered part of the Donner Party, 39 died. The rest, remarkably, go on to lead lives in California, Oregon, and elsewhere. But at great cost, Some of them never really recovered emotionally. I think Sarah was one of those who, uh, who did recover relatively well. Sarah Graves Fosdick remarries a couple of times and settles in a town east of Santa Cruz. She eventually dies of heart failure at age 46. She has a life beyond Truckee Lake. Though, of course, for many people, 
the Donner Party is synonymous only with those terrible moments in the Sierra Nevada snow. Daniel James Brown says that does them a disservice. The Donner Party in particular has been reduced basically to almost a joke in most people's mind. For me, it's just really important to remember these were real people and that they faced real human dilemmas. Some of them faced it better than others. But what I take away from it is just sort of the extraordinary courage that some of these people, Sarah included, demonstrated in face of hardships that most of us can't even imagine facing. She faced them, did what she had to do to survive, and made it to California. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guest, Daniel James Brown, author of The Indifferent Stars Above, the harrowing saga of a Donner Party bride. This episode was produced by Chloe Weiner. It was sound designed by Brian Flood and story edited by Jim O'Grady. It was fact-checked by Nate Barksdale and Catherine Newhan. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press, Corinne Wallace, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producers are Hazel May and Jonah Buchanan. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Copyright 2023, A&E Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved.